Today's episode of Onward to Victory is brought to you by WCScreens.com. Do you have needs for screen printing and embroidery? Sure you do. For wholesale prices, nationwide shipping, truly the gold standard of the industry. Call my pal Tony and the rest of his crew at WCScreens.com. You surely won't regret opening the playbook and calling this one. WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Welcome to Onward to Victory's third installment of Gridiron Groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish, an ongoing series that focuses in on a trailblazer along the long story history of Notre Dame football. You chose a great episode to tune into. Today we're going to be discussing Clifton Brown, a quarterback of the era Parsegian era. Clifton will be forever remembered as the first African American to start at quarterback for your Fighting Irish. You ready? Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Or as Father William Corby and the rest of the 69th New York of the Irish Brigade used to holler, Fagabala, or clear the way when running into battle. Clear the way indeed, this is going to be a great episode. My name is Alex Painter and this is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And you have intentionally or unintentionally stumbled onto episode 54 of this humble program. And as I mentioned, I think it's a really good one as we shine a light on an incredibly significant, yet often forgotten figure in fighting Irish football history. But first, if you haven't already, tune into episode 53. It was about what life was like as a Notre Dame student back in 1871. So 150 years ago, and actually 100 years before most of the events of this episode take place. But it was interesting to say the least. So give it a listen. It was kind of a labor of love and a I think a very important entry into the archives of the show. But why, you may ask, why would an episode about life at Notre Dame 16 years before the first football game be important? Well, I am of the belief that history doesn't have to be an endless barrage of dates, names, numbers, people, whatever it might be, but rather, as the name of the study insinuates, a story. And when it comes to Notre Dame, the school's founding, identity, cultural importance, you know, as well as those early days of the school itself are a huge part of the narrative that eventually built a football giant. So I guess that's why. Go back and give it a listen. All right, well, the regular season has concluded and your Irish have finished with an 11-1 record for their fifth consecutive season of double-digit wins. Man, well done to the guys as they have been playing really good to awesome football here in the past couple months. I mean, how many folks, when you really think about it, had them absolutely dead in the water after Game 2 against Toledo? Or what about Game 5, after Game 5, I should say, against Cincinnati? There is some serious resolve and resiliency on this version of the team. And when you really think about it again, they've done it, most of it anyways, without arguably the very best player in the entire program, and that's safety Kyle Hamilton. 
So I don't know about the rest of you, but 2021, in many respects anyway, is going to rest in a fond place in this Irish fan's heart. The games, anyway, and regardless how the bull season turns out. But, however, to address something that is kind of the elephant in the room, an idea that I had kind of teased during the last episode was a comprehensive look at the legacy of Brian Kelly as head football coach of Notre Dame. Though he had won more games than any other coach in school history, having recently passed Knut Rockney, in an era where I think it is much, much harder to win college football games as consistently as they have, but yet, of course, he has never won a national championship, something his loudest critics will shout from the nearest mountaintop. Now, a very appropriate addendum to add to this as I was finishing this episode, writing it anyways, is that Brian Kelly has left Notre Dame for a job at Louisiana State University. So now this future episode, again, that I teased last episode before this news kind of came out, is not only a curiosity, but an essential as the Brian Kelly era in South Bend winds to a very abrupt ending. Now, this was very tough news for many of us to handle, mostly because of how quick and shocking it was. And with complete respect to the subjects of this episode, which I was almost completely finished writing when this news broke, I will save my vim and vigor for a future episode, probably the next episode. But I will say this for today. What an embarrassment. And no, not even for Notre Dame. Because Notre Dame will always be Notre Dame. But what a lack of scruples for Brian Kelly, who has pulled this move now multiple times in his career. And just so it's clear, I am not trying to grandstand here. If this has taught us anything, once again, at least for Brian Kelly, is that Brian Kelly doesn't give a damn what you think, what I think, really what anyone thinks. Brian Kelly cares about Brian Kelly, and he cares about winning football games. He cares about number one, and that's probably about where it starts and ends. But what an embarrassment for the NCAA, who fought tooth and nail for decades to keep these unpaid college athletes not only unpaid, but until very recently without the leverage nor ability to easily transfer schools if needed. And yet, here we are. One school can swoop in over what seems like just a course of mere days and offer a nine-figure compensation package, two courtesy cars, oh, and an interest-free loan up to $1.2 million for a coach to buy a house. And this is, of course, all the while Notre Dame is in the midst of the college football playoff hunt. It's just ridiculous. What a broken system in so many respects. But I'd like to get more facts and details regarding the situation before putting something out there as far as a full-fledged episode. But there is a lot to unpack here. And frankly, that is all the respect and time I want to give former Irish coach Brian Kelly on today's episode. But before we hurdle into this episode, whose subject is truly worthy of discussion, let me throw out a few thank yous to those who who deserve it in a big way, and that is the Consensus All-Americans, the folks who help keep the show on the airwaves. This, This show would have been tackled in the backfield a long time ago if not for these guys, and these are my very favorite sons of Aaron, so to speak, and they are Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana. 
This show does not keep going without these gentlemen and all the others who have donated into the show in the past. So a heartfelt thank you. Our 2021 season sponsor is WCScreens.com. As I mentioned in the show intro, they are the gold standard of the screen printing and embroidery industry. So visit their website again, WCScreens.com. If you have any needs in a general want and desire for exemplary customer service. If you or your business would like to become a sponsor of the show, hang out until show wrap and I'll tell you all about it. So as a very quick history, this is the third edition of the Gridiron Groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish. The first one, episode 39, was about Wayne Edmonds, who played tackle for the Irish in the early to mid-1950s. Some really good Irish teams at that. So Edmonds was the first black player to receive a varsity football letter from Notre Dame. And unfortunately, it did not go without incident. One team threatened to boycott the game if Edmonds played. At another game, an away game, the team couldn't find a hotel that would accept them if Edmonds stayed with the team. So props to Irish head coach Frank Leahy for sticking up for his guy and planting his shoes firmly on the right side of history there. And we will see some similar behavior from an opposing fan base in this particular episode. But the second one, episode number 43, was about Rockney-era center Tommy Yar, a Native American of Snohomish descent. So he was the first openly Native American to suit up for the Irish. All right, and by a show of hands, how many of you have heard of Clifton Brown? My guess is there are probably fewer hands raised than not right now, but Brown made a quick cameo appearance earlier this season during episode 50 about the 1971 genuflect play against Purdue. Though that episode focused primarily on quarterback Pat Steenberge, Brown is mentioned. However, Brown nestles nicely into Irish lore as the first black starting quarterback in program history. And this was also in 1971. Some of you may be curious as to why this is significant. When you look across the NFL in 2021, there are probably more black quarterbacks who have started this year than there ever have been, including, just to name a few, Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, Dak Prescott, Justin Fields, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, Teddy Bridgewater, Cam Newton, Jameis Winston. I think Trey Lance started a game out in San Francisco. And I know I'm missing probably a few, but those are the ones that came top of mind here as I was writing this. So in many respects, this is progress. But this wasn't always the case. In fact, it took a hell of a long time. So here's some more context to help explain. In 1968, Denver Broncos quarterback Marlon the Magician Briscoe became the first starting quarterback in the NFL during the Super Bowl era. And it took almost 50 years for all 32 teams to have a starting quarterback who was black. Now, some may point to the newer franchises such as the Houston Texans, Carolina Panthers, and Jacksonville Jaguars as natural stumbling blocks to fill out all 32 teams, but all three of those teams actually fielded a black starting quarterback before the San Francisco 49ers, New England Patriots, Green Bay Packers, and the New York Giants. So some seriously, some blue-blooded programs here that took quite some time to check that box, so to speak, but why is this? Well, how about a bit more context? For the longest time, and this was borne out in so many cases, that 
most, if not nearly all, of black college quarterbacks would have to switch positions to get to the NFL, which we will actually see in our story. Or they'd have to go elsewhere to get a shot to play the position, such as the case with prolific passer Warren Moon, who won five Grey Cups in the Canadian Football League before finally getting a shot in the NFL. It was just incredibly commonplace. These quarterbacks would enter the pros and they'd come in as a wide receiver, running back, defensive back. But anyways, I'm going to provide an anecdote here that may be difficult to hear. But again, some hope at the end of the tunnel as well. This comes from a 2020 news story, quote, The battle for black quarterbacks begins with entry into the NFL. According to a leading academic, black quarterbacks have historically found it more difficult being drafted into the league than their white counterparts. This is from Dr. Judson L. Jeffries, a professor of African-American and African studies at The Ohio State University. He says black quarterbacks have been historically perceived as less intelligent, seen instead just as simply athletes. Keep that in mind as we will see that in our story. But he says, quote, the knock on black quarterbacks was they didn't have the intellect or academics to play the position. They could run. But when it comes to learning a playbook, reading defenses, learning sophisticated schemes, they weren't able to do that, end quote. None of this is false. Quarterbacks based on their racial makeup have been lauded for their intelligence and leadership. Others have not. And that is essentially a racial divide. This is again according to a comprehensive 2007 study by Jeffries and a colleague where they examined the rhetoric surrounding draft prospects who were quarterbacks. Now, I won't go too far into the study here, but essentially, and you might not be surprised by this, white quarterbacks were often praised for their intellect or their decision-making, whereas black quarterbacks were often uh, praised for their athleticism or raw ability. So that was really ingrained in scouts' minds for entire generations. But as I mentioned earlier, the tide has stemmed and it is changing. And this is something that Jeffries also acknowledges when he says, quote, now it appears in 2020, so last year, much to my surprise, but much to my delight. That prejudice has dissipated significantly in terms of judging black quarterbacks that way, end quote. So personally, I think that's really cool. To build a quick timeline for our Irish again, so 1887, first game. 1952, Wayne Edmonds, the first black letterman, comes along in 1971, Clifton Brown starts at QB for the Irish. So regardless, this is an incredibly significant event. So let's chop it up. Clifton Brown was born on June 14, 1952 in Middletown, Pennsylvania to Henry and Helen Brown. Now we have talked about Western Pennsylvania a number of times on the show as a prime recruiting ground for Notre Dame for a long time. But this wasn't Western Pennsylvania. Much to my surprise, actually, it's actually closer to Harrisburg in Eastern Pennsylvania in Dauphin County. But Cliff was an absolute standout at Middletown High School, excelling as a three-sport athlete in football, basketball, and track. As one may have guessed, football was his number one sport. He was damn good, too. So good, in fact, that he crossed the radar of a certain era Parsegian at Notre Dame. And as a senior during the 1969 season, the 6-foot, 100-pound Cliff was selected to the Big 33 All-Star Game after he topped 1,000 yards passing, 13 rushing touchdowns, and adding 37 points from kicking. He has clear running ability, sure, but it's his arm strength and decision-making that really wow most of the college scouts. 
he notoriously turned down Joe Paterno in Penn State for a scholarship. But anyway, if you're from Maryland or Pennsylvania, you know how prestigious it is to be named to the Big 33 All-Star team. The Chambersburg newspaper, The Public Opinion, reported that he was being hard sought by Notre Dame in their December 29, 1969 issue. So just to kind of clue everyone in on how the process worked in 1970, there wouldn't be a national signing day until 1981, so 11 years later. But even for our man Cliff Brown, by July, after he had graduated, according to a July 8th issue of the Oil City Derrick, he was still deciding between Maryland and Notre Dame, which again wouldn't have been super uncommon for decisions to be strung out that far. Or perhaps I should say unusual, but not necessarily unheard of. But upon further examination on August 14th, according to the Allentown Morning Call, he still hadn't made up his mind. But get a load of this. It wasn't until September 5th, 1970, right before classes were set to begin, that he signed his national letter of intent. According to the Daily Item from Sunbury, Pennsylvania, Brown was heavily contemplating not just Notre Dame and Maryland, but 38 other Division I offers. So yes, that was 40 offers for our man. Cliff actually wanted to enroll at Maryland, but it was his mother who wanted him to go to Notre Dame. And needless to say, some of us can sympathize. Mom typically wins out, and she did in this case as well. But a real quick explanation, or I guess I should expound further, as to why many high school students could, and sometimes would, agonize over the decision to which college to go to like Cliff did. So first, transferring was very difficult at this time. And of course, you had to sit out the obligatory season. But probably the real reason was that freshmen couldn't play varsity ball either. And they wouldn't be allowed to in both football and basketball until the 1972-73 academic year. So maybe that's why the rush wasn't necessarily on either. He wasn't going to play varsity anyway. But it was probably all for the best, because in 1970, of course, Joe Theismann was wrapping up a college football Hall of Fame career. His coach, Eric Parsegian, said Cliff was an outstanding high school player, a fine athlete who played multiple sports and had the qualities of a quarterback that we were looking for, end quote. So Cliff arrives on campus in the fall of 1970, and he is immediately inserted at quarterback of the freshman team. That year, the freshmen went 1-2 and two, with a close loss to Michigan State, a loss to Michigan, and a win over Tennessee, 21-20. And of course, at this time, they just played other freshmen. But Cliff completed 42 passes across the three games, and he also kicked all the extra points. This is from the 1970 Football Review, quote, Besides his passing ability, Brown is unusual in another respect. His leg is as strong as his arm. He hit five out of five extra points and narrowly missed his only field goal, a 43-yard attempt into a strong crosswind. So regardless of his status as a quarterback, Brown could be the kicker, both on place kicks and kickoffs, to complement the Notre Dame offense next season, end quote. Freshman coach Denny Murphy made a comment about Brown in the football review as well. Uh, one that actually would prove to be a bit prophetic in a sense. Quote, Cliff did a good job for us, said Murphy, but don't expect him to take over in the fall. 
We like what we've seen out of Steamburge and Brown or anyone else will have to beat him out first. End quote. So Brown made a particularly potent connection with junior wide receiver Tom Gatewood, who had actually just been named an All-American in 1970, and he remains one of the most prolific wide receivers in Irish history to this day. And for the first, let's say, century of Notre Dame football, he was probably the best wide receiver and easily one of the most statistically impactful, him and Jim Seymour. But, you know, Tom really respected Cliff not only as an athlete but as a person, but he also probably saw a little bit of himself in Cliff, at least from himself just two years earlier when he was a freshman, being in a very, very different place, say, than where they both grew up. But Gatewood later said that he really respected the way that Brown could, quote, whip the ball around. But when Gatewood discovered that the rising sophomore Brown would be staying in South Bend on campus during the summer of 1971, Gatewood, a Baltimore native and the rising senior, decided he would actually stick around with him. And they worked out together all summer long. Gatewood also kind of helped Brown prepare mentally for the upcoming season. Now, that may sound strange, but it was probably difficult being a black player on the team, or even a black student on Notre Dame's campus at that time. In fact, on the 1966 roster, that absolutely famous team, there was exactly one black player, and that was big number 81, defensive tackle, the honorable Alan Page. Go ahead and check out the team photo if you don't believe me. So it undoubtedly took a lot of toughness in many respects for these dudes. And that's not a piece of revisionist history. That's just plain fact. Think about it this way. In 1970, Notre Dame had 6,407 undergraduates. According to an article in the Alumni Magazine, an interesting one at that I might have to talk about later, but there was just over 100 black students at the university during this time, and quote, their dropout rate was disproportionately high, end quote. So doing some back-of-the-envelope math, which is not my strong suit, but that's about 1.5%, 1.5% of the student body was African American. So I guess why don't we just call it like it is? It's very possible that Gatewood's guidance may have helped Brown stick around the university. But going into the 1971 campaign, again, now Brown's sophomore year, he was penciled in as the number three quarterback on the depth chart behind juniors, the aforementioned Pat Steenberg and Bill Etter. So during the first game of the season against Northwestern at home, a 50-7 victory, Cliff entered the game in the fourth quarter and commandeered a final touchdown drive for the Irish. In doing so, at least as far as I could find, he became the first black quarterback to appear for Notre Dame in a football game. And not for nothing, he also kicked three extra points that game too. So again, while I can't be 100% sure, I am about 99% sure. So I'm moving forward with the assumption that he is also the first black kicker in Notre Dame history as well. But get a load of this though. As we discussed in a previous episode... Pat Steenberg is injured during the second game of the season against Purdue. So Bill Etter comes in, who backed up Joe Theismann, and he starts the third game of the season and the fourth game against Miami. But then he is injured too. 
It is fairly certain that Eder tore his knee on the AstroTurf on the Orange Bowl surface, but either way, Cliff Brown shot all the way up the depth chart to QB1 as a result. So going into the game, the Miami game that is, again at the Orange Bowl, Brown soon learned that he also had to get accustomed to the turf himself as he reputedly slipped and fell on the turf twice. But he changed shoes and led the Irish on two scoring drives, highlighted by a 33-yard scramble to set up a final touchdown and a 17-0 victory. So, heading into their fifth game of the season against North Carolina, Cliff Brown would become the first black starting quarterback in Notre Dame history. We look back and think it's significant now, but it was also then. Shortly after being named starter, Brown granted an interview to the New York Times. And to his credit, he was really candid when he was answering their questions. He said, quote, For so long, the black athlete was thought of as, give him the ball, let him run. He can't think. My being first string should convince them that a black man can play at the helm anywhere if he's good enough, end quote. Gatewood remembered some 40 years later, quote, There was no black quarterbacks and no black middle linebackers. It was considered too much brain work, end quote. So in this regard, Brown was absolutely breaking the mold. But it was at a price. Gatewood remembered how much pressure weighed in on Cliff. He said, quote, I think it ate him up a lot, end quote. In reading his words with the New York Times, it was clear that Cliff understood the stakes. So it was October 16, 1971, 50 years ago, when Cliff Brown made history for the Golden Domers. Aided by an awesome afternoon of defense, he led the Irish to a 16-0 victory. One highlight was the fourth-quarter touchdown pass to his mentor, Gatewood, that put the Tar Heels on ice for good. Though the Irish were 5-0, they would drop the next week's game against rival USC. So though, again, though their record did drop to 5-1, Brown and the Irish then rattled off three more victories against Navy, Pittsburgh, and Tulane. Against Pittsburgh, Brown found Gatewood for another touchdown pass. Against Tulane, he rushed for two touchdowns in the 21-7 victory. This was after Tulane led 7-0 at the half. The Tulane game was absolutely the highlight of the season for Brown. Not only did he rush for the two touchdowns, but he also completed 15 of 20 passes for 154 yards as well. According to the school newspaper after the game, Tulane head coach Benny Allender said, quote, Y'all got a real good football team. You came up with the big third down plays when you needed them. You're Cliff Brown was the big difference in the game as far as your offense was concerned. He made those big third down plays that hurt us. They kept the drive alive, and they turned things around, end quote. Make no mistake, too, Brown was distinct out there, aside from the fairly obvious reasons, but he also wore a large afro, which actually peeked out from under his helmet. Frankly, it just looks cool as hell from the photographs. I was able to find. But anyway, based on everything happening around the Irish program right now, 
Ironically, their last game of the 1971 season was against LSU. So, while down in Baton Rouge the day before the game, Brown and a few other teammates decided to go on a short walk outside the hotel. According to Brown's son Leonard, quote, At first, the streets were deserted, but my dad told me that within a few minutes, word must have spread that they were out there. The streets quickly got crowded, and every guy had a pistol in his waist. One guy said, don't think this is the only place we'll have guns, trying to scare my dad, as if they were going to have guns in the stadium, end quote. This is, of course, appalling behavior. According to PenLive.com, at the time, not a single SEC team had a black player on its roster, much less the most important spot on the football field, quarterback, in which Cliff Brown played. Unfortunately, and perhaps even understandably, Brown struggled mightily during the LSU game, completing only 13 of 31 passes for 151 yards. Though he threw a touchdown pass, he also threw three interceptions in a 28-8 loss. And alas, the Irish finished the 1971 season a respectable 8-2. As a quick aside... I love what the school newspaper wrote after the LSU game. Admittedly, it kind of gets me fired up a little bit, particularly due to the present circumstances, but here you go. Quote, It would be hard to end this story, the story of the LSU Notre Dame recap, on an optimistic note. It certainly was not the way a team would like to close out a football season. But just remember this. You can't kill the spirit of the Fighting Irish no matter how bad you may beat the team itself. Someday in the near future, Notre Dame will hopefully schedule LSU again. And Notre Dame will remember the ignominy of this game. That's when the Tigers will find out what the Notre Dame spirit is really like. That's when they'll discover the true meaning of the word hell. End quote. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, for what it's worth, though, the Irish did win six of the next ten matchups against LSU. Not for nothing, again, including the last two in bowl games. But as for Cliff Brown, he finished the season with 56 completions on 111 attempts. And at the time, that was a fairly respectable 50.4 completion percentage for 669 yards and four passing touchdowns. He also rushed for 253 yards and a pair of touchdowns. Interceptions were his biggest drawback, with nine on the season. And of course, three of those did come in the final game of the season when, well, violence had been threatened on him. But unfortunately for Cliff, he would be used sparingly for the next two seasons. Tom Clements, a hell of a good quarterback in his own right, would pilot the Irish from 1972 through 1974. The 73 team, of course, was a national championship team, which Cliff was a member of as a senior. So Cliff completed a couple passes his junior year in 1972, and he actually played in eight games as a senior in 1973, where he completed 14 to 28 passes for 228 yards and three touchdowns. He also rushed for 134 yards and a pair of touchdowns that year as well. 
capping off an admirable career. So he was actually drafted in the 17th round of the 1974 NFL Draft by the Philadelphia Eagles. As was the case for many black quarterbacks drafted in the NFL, he switched to a running back, defensive back hybrid. He unfortunately never did make an NFL roster, though. Though he played a bit of semi-pro football, he worked construction for most of the rest of his life, as well as with Hertz Rent-A-Car, and he returned back home to Pennsylvania and lived a fairly quiet life. And he loved to fish and he loved to hunt. However, Clifton Brown sadly died of a heart attack at age 60 in 2012. His former coach, Ara Parsegian, recalled him fondly after his death when he said, quote, Cliff was a good person, which made it very easy. He was a laid-back guy who always had a smile and did well with his teammates, end quote. Oh, and something else I discovered about Cliff. Some of you may be familiar with the bookstore basketball tournament on Notre Dame's campus, which is branded as the largest outdoor basketball tournament in the world with over 700 teams competing at its peak. Talk about a total spectacle. Look into it. It actually has its own Wikipedia page. But anyway, the first bookstore basketball tournament was held in 1972. At the time, though much, much, much smaller, there still were over 50 teams competing. And Brown was on the very first bookstore basketball tournament winning team. So pretty cool. But... There really is not a whole lot about his career, nor the sheer significance of it. So I have to give props to a 2012 Penn Live story, which provided some really good information. Other than that, it was straight from the newspapers and school paper, which honestly is a real shame, as this should be a story that is chronicled and known amongst the Notre Dame football fan base. I believe it in my heart of hearts. So let's hope this episode catches on and helps tell the story of Clifton Brown, the first black quarterback to start a game at Notre Dame. And again, possibly the first black kicker as well. But the fact that he was the first black quarterback to start at Notre Dame, of course, gave way to the likes of Tony Rice, Kevin McDougal, Everett Golson, Malik Zaire, Brandon Wimbush, and so on and so forth. They all stand on Clifton Brown's shoulders. A trailblazer. A real gridiron groundbreaker of the Fighting Irish. And I'll be back with show wrap. Well, I hope you enjoyed that very critical slice of Irish history there about Clifton Brown, the first black starting quarterback in program history. And tonight when I was talking to one of my brothers, Colton, we had kind of brought up the fact that, hey, what if while I'm recording this episode, Notre Dame hires a new head coach? And I was thinking that'd be quite something because in the time that it took me to just merely record this episode, that means we would have had a coach abruptly quit and then a new one hired but guess what that's exactly what happened as just mere moments ago 
Marcus Freeman was named the new head coach for your Fighting Irish. I was pulling for this one. I know a lot of you were too. And uh, one of our listeners, Jared, he actually met Marcus uh, on campus here last year and got his autograph. So I thought that was really awesome. But so now Notre Dame will have a new head coach, one that's really exciting, young, lots of vigor, lots of charisma, a devil on the recruiting trail. So we're going to have to see where this all goes and see if there's any short-term ramifications as well as far as the Irish's hope into the college football playoff. But long-term, I really think Notre Dame scored an absolute knockout in hiring Marcus Freeman as head coach. So again, how about that? In the time it just took this 36, 37-minute episode to be recorded, we've lost a coach, we've gained a new head coach within our own ranks. It has also been reported that Offensive coordinator Tommy Reese is staying too. He got in front of the team and gave a bit of an address. A lot of folks are pointing out that it was actually longer than the address that Brian Kelly gave the guys when he was leaving. And so Tommy Reese remains in the fold as well as offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. But as I mentioned, I will do an entire episode about Brian Kelly's legacy in South Bend as well as just kind of encapsulating this entire strange saga of his exit and all of that. That's coming up soon. But like I said before the episode started, I didn't want to dedicate too much time towards it on this particular episode, even though it's very much in the front of most Irish fans' minds. And that's because we had very important work to do today, and that was to talk about and discuss Clifton Brown, the, again, first black starting quarterback in program history. So I do really hope you enjoyed the episode. He deserves so much more as far as his place in the lore of the Notre Dame program. He really does. So I guess that really means the call to action is on us. We can ensure that Cliff Brown is one that's not forgotten. And so if you have an opportunity, talk about him. If you have an opportunity, bring him up. I know a lot of us talk about Notre Dame football with our family, friends, loved ones, whoever it might be. And he's not going to come up, of course, in a conversation about the greatest Notre Dame quarterbacks. But he could certainly find an inroad in a conversation about the most significant Notre Dame quarterbacks, and that is absolutely where he belongs. So, like I said, maybe the charge is truly on us as fans that he posthumously, because of course he died almost a decade ago, kind of starts to receive his due. But I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I would talk about how you can support the show. So if you'd like to become a consensus All-American, just like my pals, Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, and Weston Painter of Fort Wayne, Indiana, you can do so very simply. A simple donation to the show to help keep the lights on, keep the train moving in the right direction, that is. You can, you can do so at paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast for ongoing monthly support it doesn't matter either way is perfectly acceptable and graciously accepted i should note and if you're not in a position where you can donate to the show monetarily that is okay please just continue to listen and share and discuss and keep the spirit of the fighting irish alive uh, it's it's all greatly, greatly appreciated in the grand scheme of things. And frankly, uh, if there were no listeners, there'd be no show. So keep listening. Uh, if, if you're not uh, donating monetarily to the show, I really appreciate all the support from everybody as we continue to grow around here and continue to become a premier Notre Dame podcast, albeit an incredibly unique one as far as what else is out there. That's actually all I have for today. I guess it's now December, so I hope everyone's preparing to have a very warm and peaceful 
holiday season. And again, I will have another episode coming for you before Christmas. So just buckle in and it's going to be a good one. It's going to be about uh, the legacy of Brian Kelly, what I think it's going to be moving forward. And of course, in the annals of, of Notre Dame history, and it's this episode, this next one's going to be dramatically different as far as the the scope and also the perspective than what it was going to be when I initially said I was going to do it. But uh, it's going to be interesting nonetheless. So with that, I had best sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, friends, go Irish. Irish.